look at it, Johnny. Look at it! This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, man. Just let me go out there. Let me get one wave before you take me. One wave. Don't call it a comeback. It's been a rally since October. This ain't about luck. This ain't no four-leaf clover. It's a reversion to the mean. Cut and dry. Kind of lean. With mega caps getting fat. But here comes small caps on the track. Market breadth is improving. Industrial started grooving. Even banks got some swagger. 401ks getting fatter. Still, they call it a skinny bull. Half calf shot of soy. But I'd rather be a doughboy than a no-boy when the bulls are on the run. We're starting to see the sun through the haze. Say hey, Willie Mays. Grab your bat. Take some rips. Full extension. Deep flex. We're swinging for the fences on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and make way for the bull. That's right, the S&P 500 is now officially in bull market territory, climbing 20% from those October lows. It's been a long, slow grind higher since then, but it ends the longest bear market since 1948. 248 trading days to be exact. It's kind of remarkable that the stock market has been so resilient amid all those rate hikes, bank failures, raging inflation, China tensions, dollar concerns, you name it, a very tough climb. And the momentum across the entire equity market feels kind of real. All 11 sectors of the S&P 500 were higher last week as the index tacked on close to half a percent, the fourth week in a row of gains. The Nasdaq also inched higher, its seventh straight week of gains, the longest stretch since November of 2019, if you're keeping score, and the Dow popped 0.3%. Not blockbuster gains, but a steady drumbeat higher. And small caps even joined the party with the Russell 2000 climbing close to 2% for the week. We haven't seen that in a while, and it shows some conviction on the part of equity investors. And history may be in our favor. Bank of America Research says the S&P 500 rises 92% of the time following the start of a new bull market, compared to the historical 75% average over any other 12-month period going all the way back to the 1950s. Does that mean it's definitely going to happen this time around? Not at all. But good odds are good, and long-term investors are usually rewarded for hanging in there, which leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one. Why are so many people calling this a skinny bull market? It's that concentration thing again, isn't it? Only eight stocks have really driven the returns of the S&P 500, and we all know who they are. Apple, Meta, Amazon, Netflix, Alphabet, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla. That's FANG plus MNT if you're into bad acronyms. Bianco Research points out that of the 10% plus returns in the S&P 500 so far this year, the other 492 stocks have only contributed less than 0.2%. We've talked a lot about this lately because it's the reason many believe this rally is not sustainable. You have to have more balanced scoring across the markets for a rally to have legs. You need good old-fashioned Dow theory to kick in. A rally in one index needs to be supported by a subsequent rally in another, and that leads us to number two this week. We are getting that support, finally! 60% of consumer discretionary stocks are trading above their 50-day moving average. They say the U.S. consumers tapped out, tired of inflation, and tired of spending. Investors don't seem to think so. And generally speaking, the ratio of new 52-week highs minus new 52-week lows has been trending higher. More higher highs than lower lows across the stock market, from the 5,000-plus stocks at the New York Stock Exchange and the 3,300-plus stocks listed on the NASDAQ. You can call it a skinny bull, you can call it a decaf half-cast skinny shot of soy, but it's a rally sally and it's getting more robust by the day. And number three, what could go wrong? Plenty, actually. The Fed meets this week, and as we know, they could decide to keep raising rates until inflation actually hits 2%, but that's not likely. Another big bank could collapse, triggering a liquidity freeze and a huge shell-off. 
but we've gone a couple months now without any further implosions. And all of these new treasury bonds being issued by the government flooding the market post-debt ceiling agreement could set money out of the market. But it didn't happen last week, and earnings could really plunge if consumers stop spending and we have a hard landing into a deep recession. That's a pretty big list of things that could go wrong, and I know, I'm leaving things off of it. But let's just take earnings for now, since investors buy stocks anticipating earnings or profit growth. That's the game. Corporate results were actually better last quarter than anticipated. They usually are, and they're not going to be that great for this current quarter, according to FactSet. Corporate earnings for the S&P 500 are expected to decline again for the third consecutive quarter, dropping 6.4% from the same period last year. That would be the biggest quarterly drop since the second quarter of 2020, just as the pandemic was setting in. And those earnings forecasts for the current quarter have actually been falling since March 31st when analysts were predicting a 4.8% drop for the quarter. That's never a good sign. But investors may be looking past this quarter, and that view looks a lot better. FactSet estimates show a 0.8% increase in the third quarter for S&P 500 earnings, and then a whopping 8.2% to close out the year. Let's get set up for a massively massive week ahead. The Fed is meeting on interest rates this Tuesday and Wednesday, with Chair Powell set to announce the FOMC's decision on whether to pause or raise rates another quarter of a percent at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday. The CME's Fed tracker shows a 75% probability that the Fed will pause and keep rates right where they are between 5 and 5 and a quarter percent. But Powell and voting members of the Federal Open Market Committee will get a last look at inflation data with the release of the Consumer Price Index on Tuesday, followed by the Producer Price Index on Wednesday. There are concerns that inflation drifted higher last month as gas prices ticked up ahead of the summer driving season. Still, look for consumer prices to clock in at a 4.1% annual rate, down from 4.9% last month. Remember, it was July of 2022 when inflation hit that 40-year high of 9.1%, so prices have come down more than 50% since then. We're likely to hear Fed Chair Powell say, quote, there's more to be done on bringing down prices close to the Fed's 2% target range, but the trend is definitely heading in the right direction. We'll also get an update on consumer spending on Thursday when the Census Bureau releases retail sales figures for May. Consumers feel stretched, no doubt about it, but we keep on spending despite record high credit card APRs and swelling balances. The European Central Bank will also meet on interest rates this week, and the consensus is that the ECB will raise rates another quarter of a percent given persistent inflation in the eurozone. We learned last week that the Eurozone fell into a technical recession during the fourth quarter of last year and the first quarter of 2023. Not a surprise there, but don't tell the equity markets in Europe. Many of them are flirting with new 52-week highs. And things are going to get a little scary on Friday with a triple witching event brewing here in the U.S. markets. That's the simultaneous expiration of stock options, stock index futures, and stock index option contracts all on the same trading day. That happens four times a year on the third Friday of March, June, September, and December, and it usually brings a lot of volatility with it, although volatility has been on an extended sabbatical. Let's see if the witches can wake it up. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> hey, chill on the dog. We love our canine friends around here. Deep down in the epicenter of the capital markets where the steam runs hot and billions of dollars flow like lava every day, there are men and women plying their trade, moving that money through the markets and making sure it goes where it's supposed to. These are the brokers, the specialists, the market makers, and the traders at the heart of the New York Stock Exchange. 
We see them on TV. We see them on our news feeds. And we somehow trust them and we connect to them. They are the Sherpas of our money in the stock market, the faces of modern day capitalism. Jay Woods is one of them. He's been braving the floors of this 230-year-old exchange for more than a quarter of a century. He's now the chief global strategist for Freedom Capital Markets, a former New York Stock Exchange executive floor governor, a certified market technician, and a good friend to Investopedia, and our very special guest this week on The Express. Welcome. Caleb, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of The Express, and it's an honor to have you in to the New York Stock Exchange for this interview. Yeah, you can hear the hustle and bustle on the floor right below us. And you know this room, Jay, so to speak. You've been here for a while. What's the temperature down here as it relates to the feeling in the market, given the quiet rally we've sort of been going through this year, despite all odds? Yeah, I, I like how you said quiet rally. It has been a nice, slow, sustained rally, one that people really didn't see coming because the headlines have been very negative. Last week, the talk was all about debt ceiling. We cleared that hurdle did not affect the market. In fact, we cleared above 4,200. Now we're focused on this week coming up with uh, the Fed rate hike. See if it's a pause, a skip, a hop. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's going to be exciting. It should move markets. And then we have Quad Witch at the end and then Russell Reconstitution at the end of the month. It is a summer slowdown, but we have a few things that you'll come back and you'll see some action in this building. Yeah, money never sleeps. And even though it can be quiet here, there's a lot going on. And you guys are looking at the macro events. You're looking at the micro events. You're also looking stock to stock, market to market, market analysis. I know you're a CMT, so you're looking at all these different asset movement from place to place. But this also been pretty quiet from a volatility perspective. And that can be a good thing, especially when the market's grinding higher. What are you noticing there? Yeah, everyone's going to talk about the VIX and how it continues to go lower, a uh, 15 handle, a 14 handle. That to me is fine. I'm not following just the VIX, that fear index. I'm following top-down approach, looking at what the leadership is. And everyone talked about the Magnificent Seven and what is leading this market. And that's horrible. We only have a handful of stocks taking us up. Something's changed. We're finally seeing that broadening of the breath, that rotation. Utilities led yesterday. We've seen materials, industrials, and financials start to lift their heads. And technically, we saw some nice movement. We saw the Russell 2000 finally break out of its downtrend, hold support, making a nice rally. And transports, no one talks about the transports, but they're coming back. This is what we want to see. Yes, it can be slow. It can be boring. It won't make headlines, but from a market standpoint, this is the lifeblood of a bull market rotation, and we're, we're happy to have it. Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking about Dow theory. You want those transports to rally if you're seeing the other sectors rally. A lot of people like our good buddy Josh Brown and others argue that chips are the new transport stocks, and they've been rallying because of all the excitement around AI. But when you see microchips rallying and you see some of these other sectors now join the rally, that's that breath expansion that we want to see, right? You want to see like a good NBA playoff team or a good finals team. You want to see balanced scoring, balanced defense. We're getting that back into the markets here, even though the big popular stocks, which get all the attention because they're so widely held, they're making the big gains and dragging the market with it. You think this is the beginning or the middle of the beginning of what could be another bull market? It could be. I don't think we're going to run away. I don't think there's going to be euphoria. There's still a lot of hurdles to overcome. You were seeing the jobless numbers tick up. That could lead us into, quote unquote, an official recession. This recession is very different. I think when we look back in history, this is going to have an asterisk. You know, you have the COVID times and we've seen rolling recessions. We saw it in lumber. We saw it in energy and crude prices. We've seen it in eggs and food. And now the jobs numbers starting to tick up. It's not hitting us all at once. Yes, we had the two negative uh, quarters of GDP, which to me, you know, signal the recession. But the people that make that call, the MBER, they want to see jobs numbers. And by the time they officially call it, 
it may be the time to buy. Good friends of mine like Tony Dwyer always point out that, you know, when we get that recession call, we make that new low. We're getting too far away from that October low for me to believe that if we do hit an official recession, that we're going to test those lows and we can slowly grind sideways and higher. And sideways is a direction and we can trend sideways to slightly higher for quite some time. Right. And a recession doesn't necessarily mean a bear market. These things are not the same as everybody knows, but not everybody thinks that. They see a, a recession, a potential downturn in the economy, and they assume a sell-off in the stock market. But investors, as we know, they're way ahead of that. Yes. They're, they're looking out six, 12 months, even more at times. And when you look at sectors like the housing market, for example, housing sales have been terrible, right? The housing market has been in a recession. Housing stocks, don't tell them, they're up a lot this year. So it's one of those disconnects where investors may be way out ahead of the next move. And look at mortgage rates. Mortgage rates are at levels that were there when I bought my first place in 1997. I thought it was cheap at 6%. Now people are freaking out, but the demand is still there. You have this next generation, the millennials moving out, buying homes, and the supply isn't there. So when you look at the home builders, the XHB is making new highs. The stocks within it, the refurbishing stocks, the floor and the cores, the Home Depots, they're not doing as well, but the home builders, Lennar and DHI, new highs. And that's where the strength happens to be. And that's not showing signs of recession to me. Right. And also, as our good buddy JC Pratt says, it's a market of stocks. So stocks are doing their thing in different sectors. Doesn't mean the whole market is trending that direction. Let's talk about the real change in temperature, just given high interest rates, given that persistently high inflation. Down here at the stock exchange, we haven't had an IPO in a while, a big one in a while. We've had some companies come over, yep. but we haven't had that big high profile thing where there's 10, 11 trucks parked outside and people parachuting into Wall Street. You need that sort of flow of cheaper money to come into the market for that to happen. But what are we sort of waiting for for that to happen? Well, the official line is the pipeline is robust. Uh, there are a lot of companies knocking on the door, but there are a lot of companies, especially in the fintech space, that they suffered a lot during the last year or so with their valuations. The IPO market will come back. It will come back slowly. We saw one in Kenview. It was a spin from Johnson & Johnson. That went extremely well in a sector, the healthcare sector, that hasn't been doing well. I suspect if we can get through the Fed hiking cycle, which seems like we're closer to the end, and we don't have that sell-off, don't have that official recession worry over us, you're going to see at the end of the year, people rush to the market. You're not going to see the euphoria that we saw at the height pre-COVID, during COVID with the SPAC boom. That, to me, a little troublesome. We saw that back in the night. I, you said I've been here for over a quarter of a century. I was here when we had the gateway cow on the floor and the E-Trade chimp, and it was euphoric, and it was something new every single day. Right now, we're going to slowly get back to that, but it's a process. And for companies, they want market conditions to be right, and they don't want to be that first company to take that step and prove that, no, it wasn't time. Yeah, somebody needs to break the ice, but you also need to have that appetite among institutional investors, more importantly, for those new issues, but also retail investors have to get excited about it. But just because you haven't seen those big splashy IPOs doesn't mean there's not a lot of market activity going on. And again, some of it's intermarket, some of it's just on the index side, on the ETF side. We know the New York Stock Exchange is big in that. Let's talk about the role of the exchange today. Obviously, it's changed over the years. Technology's had a lot to do with that. Efficiency's had a lot to do with that. Electronic exchanges have had a lot to do with that. And ICE and the New York Stock Exchange are electronic for all intents and purposes. But for those people that see it but don't know what's really going on, why is it important to the retail investor what the men and women are doing down here on the floor every day? Yeah, it's very important and it has evolved. When I started here 25 years ago, there were 5,000 people on this floor. There was paper all over the place. You don't see one piece of paper. Crowds clamoring, trying to get the best price for their customer. 
Everything evolves, technology evolved, and as a result of the technology advancements, you didn't need as many people. Doesn't mean we're not as efficient. In fact, we're the most efficient exchange in the world, and the human plays a big role, but they're not front and center unless it's a bad day and they want to get that ugly picture of my mug and throw it all over CNBC. But the human element is crucial in times of an IPO, when there's a big event, in times of distress, when there's volatility. We pause, the circuit breakers are in place, but the humans get back in charge. The analogy they like to use for market makers, which I spent 28 of my great career down here, 28 great years, is we're like airline pilots. Uh, you know, Some people may get on that plane without a pilot, but here at the New York Stock Exchange, that market maker is there for your takeoffs and landings, opens and closes, and then turbulence during a fight. And that could come in the form of volatility, a fat finger error. These are things that have happened. And when there were humans here to decipher it, we'd help them out. But if you go to put 10,000 to buy and add that extra zero and hit done, you're buying 100,000. That could move stocks too far too fast, have a genuine error. You want to have those safeguards in place and let the humans make that judgment once something like that happens. But the human element always plays a vital role. And then what's the next stage? You're always thinking about what is next. We hear AI. Yeah, AI will help program the algorithms that make us better. But it's the humans that will give it the information and make sure things are running efficiently and then be here to protect the ultimate customer, the retail investor, if things go a little awry. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I'd rather see your face than a robot's face when things are going well or they're going bad. And you should get paid for every time they show your face. Maybe we need to create our own little coin off of that. Good or bad, you should get some money for that because they are always using you. And for good reason, you are one of the more important people down here, been here a long time. Let's talk about the importance of financial literacy and education. I know it's something you're passionate about. You've been passionate about throughout your career. You're in the CMT, chartered market technicians. These are the chartists of the world. And it's so important to sort of teach that to people who want to get into this game. What are you been doing in the financial literacy education arena? And what do you think is important for new investors and traders to know as they get into this? Yeah, well, I, we welcome all new investors. People have access to markets like they've never had before. You can just pull out your phone and trade, not just a share, a fraction of a share. That to me is something we never had that opportunity. I look at what I do as far as financial literacy is just giving back. I was blessed with that when I was eight years old. I was gifted two shares of IBM and I tracked it and I followed it. As a father, I have a teenage son that we bought a share of Tesla and I blogged about it. And the passion that people had about his story was what really transitioned me into getting in front of high school students, college students, teaching them things that we didn't have the opportunity to learn. I love learn by doing. I love people that go in and I bought AMC, I bought GameStop. Oh no, what do I do now? Well, we, you and I, through Investopedia, through my work here at the exchange and through Freedom, have the ability to tell it's okay. Learn by doing is fine. Just don't make the same mistakes again and again. And then number one, when you get involved in a stock, have a plan. If your plan is it's going to go to the moon, we have to have a little bit of a talk. I, I love your moxie, but what if it goes down? Oh, I didn't think of that. Well, yeah, I was a successful trader for so many years because I always thought of worst case scenarios, not the way you like to live your life, but it's the way to survive to the next day. There were too many people that lived high on the hog, had those great times during the dot com and bonus time came. And do you know what? Three months a year, there was a Ferrari dealership down the end of Wall Street and they knew it was bonus season. People would get that check. They drive off. That's not the example you want to set. You want to talk about long-term investing, learn by doing, have that man money, have some fun in the stock market, use charts for not just 
trading breakouts or breakdowns, but for long trending things, this is, they're your guidelines. There is no chart that will tell you, oh, you're going to make a million dollars just by this stock is trending up, but you're going to save yourself some money and a lot of headaches if you follow the chart. Yeah. And there are maps and learning how to read those maps is so important. And that can just be, again, looking at something on a long-term horizon, looking at different patterns, and then getting really jiggy with it and looking at some of the more exotic patterns that I know our market technicians love. So I'm wondering what your favorite pattern is. What's your favorite trading pattern? You got to have a few. What's one that really well, sticks I, I, out I do you? love the candlesticks. When you're trading on a short-term basis, you can see things on a day-to-day -day basis that most people don't. But my favorite chart patterns are big rounded bases. As JC Presley, big rounded bottoms. You know, yeah. Who doesn't like a big rounded bottom, he would say. I'm not saying that that's JC. And then breakouts from those things. Two of the best trades I've ever made in my career were longer term trades in a PayPal and in a Microsoft that were great names, companies I believed in, companies I thought had a great story, but the stocks weren't doing anything. And then you'd see them trend sideways for years and then something changed. They broke out and momentum came into the name. And then you follow that uptrend. And if it changes, if it breaks, it happened in Meta a couple of times where, okay, something's changed. I'm going to get out and I'm going to manage my risk that way. But big rounded bottom breakouts, nothing like it. Yeah, the bigger the base, the higher in space is exactly. what he likes to say. And that's, again, having the watch list, but also you mentioned it earlier, risk management, two of the most important words for investors, for traders, whatever you're doing, know your risk parameters, know what you can afford to lose, know what you're doing, when to get in, when to get out, when to hold them, when to fold them. So important, but none of that comes overnight, Jay. That is learning as an investor, making mistakes, but also going deep on whether it's market patterns or whether it's fundamental analysis, knowing what you own, so important in this business. If you weren't doing this for your career, what would you be doing, Jay? Well, I went to college to go to law school. I like to argue with people. So the New York Stock Exchange was a great transition. On the financial education front, I had an internship going to law school, but the internship was in the financial industry. And I learned by doing, I had a mentor. I had people there that would answer what my silly questions are. Why is it red? Why is it green? Okay. Red is down. Green is up. Okay. Don't ask the same question twice. Learn and then learn about the people you're going to work with. That internship brought me to Wall Street. But if I wasn't on Wall Street, I'd probably be miserable lawyer somewhere in Philadelphia. Who knows? Yeah, well, we're glad. We're, we need you on this wall, so to speak. So much history has gone through this building. I know you've been through a lot down here, some very happy events and some pretty sad events, but what's one event that sticks out most in your mind as one of the more memorable experiences you've had as a member of the New York Stock Exchange? Oh, that, that's an easy answer. The most memorable experience was obviously being with this floor community during 9-11, but the best experience was when we reopened. It was Monday, 9-17-2001. We were the first people to come back. The New York Stock Exchange was the first place to open. The Yankees, the Mets, the Giants, they weren't playing. Broadway still shut down. What was open? We were open. What started that? That bell, let freedom ring. And so when we came down here as a market maker, stocks were going down. I was going to lose a lot of money. We didn't care. We rallied around each other. People would come into the, my crowd as sellers. We would hug, we would cry. And the people that rang that bell, First responders every day for months would come through this building. But if you saw that podium, you can Google this. It was Hillary Rodham Clinton, our senator, and our mayor, Rudy Giuliani, together, like arm in arm on that podium. There was nothing bigger than that event. And to be a part of it, a very small part of it, just to come to work that day and reopen the markets, no better day in my life. Yeah, that tragedy brought a lot of people together. Uh, and I was also fortunate to be down here for the reopen and I'll never forget it either. So glad I saw you then. Glad we're seeing you now. Got one last question on the way out. You know, Investopedia is a site 
built on our terms. I know what your favorite pattern is. I'm wondering what your favorite investing or trading term is. What is Jay Wood's top term? I love key reversal day. Key reversal day as a trader, as a technician, you want to see something like we saw October 13th in the S&P 500, where it looks like, feels like the end of the world. And then we reverse and we reverse hard and then we don't look back. So a morning star pattern, if you're looking at candlesticks, that is a pattern I like, but key reversal day, that to me is the all clear. Do you call it on that day? You're very bold if you do, but looking back, you're gonna find that one day where it was the end of the world, we ended up at the high and the trend changed. Those are my favorites. Yeah, and you got to look out for those. We love that term. You're the first one to mention that. So we're going to make sure we send you a special gift. Jay Woods, the Chief Global Strategist at Freedom Capital Markets and a good friend of Investopedia. Thanks so much for coming on The Express. It's about thank, time. Thank you. I love The Express and uh, I'm honored. Have me back anytime. Thank you. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Ethan Musilek, who hit us up on Instagram suggesting present value this week. We love that term given the rumblings around the new bull market and the valuations of the biggest eight stocks that we talked about earlier. According to Ethan and my favorite website, present value is the current value of a future sum of money or stream of cash flows given a specified rate of return. Future cash flows are discounted at the discount rate, and the higher the discount rate, the lower the present value of the future cash flows. Determining the appropriate discount rate is the key to properly valuing future cash flows, whether they be earnings or debt obligations. Present value also makes us think about whether the money we have on hand now can be worth more in the future if we invest in it. If we don't, inflation eats away at our present value. If we do, we need to calculate what rate of return we may get if we put that money to work instead. It's kind of fundamental as to whether we invest or not. Great suggestion, Ethan. DM us your address and we'll send you a pair of Investopedia's finest socks. They'll keep you smart and stylish. We're going to let the late, great Jack Bogle take us out this week. Bogle, the founder of Vanguard and the godfather of index investing, liked to keep it simple, even during wild market declines like we experienced during the great financial crisis. Bogle's message was simple and consistent. Here's Bogle with our pal Christine Benz of Morningstar in a conversation from 2010. I mean, if you visualize investment as growing in kind of a steady line, which it does, and visualize the crazy market as being all these jags up and down around this steady line, upward, upward, always upward, I think, um, then you've got to say, I know I'm not smart enough to get out at the high. I know I'm not smart enough to get back in at the low. So I'm just going to stay the course, as we would say at Vanguard, and hang on through all that. Stay the course. Words of wisdom in investing and in life. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to Jay Woods for hosting us down at the New York Stock Exchange. Jay is a fountain of wisdom, so do follow his blog and his socials to tap into it. We'll link to those and all the reports we cited on today's show in the show notes. Find those wherever you ride the Express and on Investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. And hey, we have a new magazine app. What to do with $10,000? That's one of the most popular questions we get here at Investopedia. That's on newsstands now and on Apple News. And we try to answer that question for a multitude of scenarios because everyone's needs are personal. That's why we call it personal finance. Hang on tight during this busy week and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.